Welcome back to the Muzzle Blast Podcast, the official podcast of the National Muzzleloading Rifle Association. This week, we're talking with Tyler Mazer of Stonefield Accoutrements. Tyler is a young man who's been involved in the outdoors and camping and kind of a, in a, a young outdoorsman's lifestyle his entire life. And here recently, he's really dived into some of the history of West Virginia and the accoutrements and just accessories of muzzleloading and started making them himself. We talked to him about what it's like being someone in their 30s getting involved with muzzleloading and the auxiliary crafts and items that go with it. It's a fun conversation. If you're interested in getting started with knife making or accoutrement making, you're going to enjoy this episode. This podcast is brought to you by Thor Bullets. Thor Bullets are a premium full-bore muzzleloader bullet designed specifically for modern inline rifles. Thor Bullets do not require plastic sabos or belts to be fired, meaning less cleaning for you between shots. The patented copper base creates an airtight seal, giving you greater distance and accuracy. Thor's unique engineering allows the bullets to retain 95% of their weight upon impact, and the controlled expansion ensures large, easy-to-follow blood trails. Thor bullets are currently available in a 50 caliber version that is sized to your specific bore. Thor is also expanding into a new 45 caliber bullet designed for faster 1 in 24 and 1 in 22 twist inline rifles. For more information on these great bullets, visit www.thorbullets.com. We'd like to thank Thor Bullets for their sponsorship of this podcast. I am Tyler Mazer. Uh, I live in a small town of Cherry Run, West Virginia. Um, it's actually a really small town between uh, Berkeley Springs and Hedgesville, West Virginia, which are both very historic uh, around George Washington. George Washington tur- took his first bath in the town of Berkeley Springs, which was formerly known as the town of Bath, West Virginia. Hmm. Um, so I'm surrounded by history and in, in the area I live in. Um, I am, I wouldn't call myself an accoutrements maker, but I enjoy making accoutrements. Um, It's something that um, I just pick up things and I kind of look at stuff and I go, you know, I either want one of those for myself or I want one. I just want to make it, you know, whether it's for myself or not, it's just something I look at and I go, that, that'd be cool to make. And I, I don't want to try it. Yeah. So I've always had, you know, ability to look at stuff and basically problem solve as to how stuff is either made or how I need to make it to, to suit me and my uses. Um, whether it's something, a picture or something, or whether it's something I've seen somewhere, you know, a friend has that has gone, Hey, check this out. I'm like, Oh man, that's awesome. I love it. I want one. And they go, well, they're expensive. Well, I don't have money, so I'm going to make it. (laughs) So, um, I've always been that way. Even as a kid, I I love to make stuff and, um, try to push what I was able to do. So that's a little bit about me, you know, personal stuff about me. As far as muzzleloading goes, you know, I got into muzzleloading at a fairly young age. I was in my teens. Um, I grew up um, with family members who had muzzleloaded for decades. So I was always you know, around that stuff at my grandparents and we'd go over for a visit or whatever. And I always have a fascination of what was in the gun cabinet. Mm-hmm. And um, there were always muzzleloaders and different things that 
hop over and just stare and walk past and want to see him and want to pull him out and hold him and, and touch him, even as a young kid. And um, when my grandfather passed away, I, I was 11. Um, and my uncle really started to get back into hunting and muzzleloading, but he needed help. Um, my uncle is chair bound in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's not able to load a muzzleloader himself, but he can still shoot. Um, so my dad and I started going to the range with him on occasion. And that's where I really learned, um, probably 12 years old, how to load a muzzleloader. And I basically loaded for him and there would be a round or two that he'd say, all right, well, you, you loaded for me. Why don't, why don't you shoot this round? Hmm. So that's kind of how I got pulled into muzzle loading. Um, was really due to my uncle and, you know, of course my grandfather having done it in the seventies and eighties. So, okay. Well, that's neat. I think that's a, a real common way to get into it, you know, through family members, especially in the area of the country that you're in. I mean, that was one of the places that, you know, we started as a country. And I, it's, it's neat that you're kind of, you're living in that area and you're continuing that tradition. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of a weird tradition in my family. You know, like I said, I, I talked about my dad and uncle and of course my grandfather, my dad has no real interest whatsoever in, um, hunting or really even much shooting. Um, but because it, it's something he was he did as a kid. I mean, his summer vacations, he talks about all the time. That the only thing that they did at summer for summer vacation was to go to Friendship and shoot. Um, so he grew up doing that, mm-hmm. um, and you know, throwing hawks and knives and that sort of stuff. So he knows all about it. It's just not an interest he has anymore. And right. I, I don't know if it's did it at such a young age. He felt like he had to, he didn't have any other choice. And now it's just, it's not his thing or he did it long enough to know, uh, I enjoyed it, but it's not me anymore, you know, but I, it's still, we still have all the stuff and I still have some stuff that was my dad's as a kid. Um, the family, we have a 36 caliber, um, kid's gun that was, everything was scaled down, hand built. Uh, one third scale uh, that my uncle shot at about the age of eight. Um, so, you know, we've got some pretty cool family heirloom type stuff that um, we have. And even the the gun I shoot was my grandfather's in the eighties um, that I still shoot every day. You know, as mm-hmm. whenever I go out, that's, that's the gun I pick up and it goes with me and it's kind of carrying a piece of, him and a piece of family with me wherever I go. Yeah. So. so what kind of rifle is that? It is a, well, it started life as a 45 caliber, um, straight barreled flint lock, uh, that was made by Larry Gardner, hmm. um, who is out of Silver Spring, Maryland. And then over the years, it had seen some abuse. It, it hung above a fireplace, um, uh, a wood burning fireplace when my grandfather passed away and it had some barrel issues with it that I tried shooting through and, um, actually ran into some great difficulty. Yeah. Um, and 
my good friend Tim Williams uh, actually helped me at one point in time, and we I had a ball stuck um, with a live load. It wouldn't go off, and he was like, "Oh, we'll take it back to the house and, and we'll uh, punch punch the ball out of it, and, and we'll have no problem." Well, he took the breech out of it. He said it took him almost three and a half hours with a steel ramrod to knock the ball out of the barrel. Oh my gosh! Um, and it was at that point I decided, okay, if I'm going to keep shooting this, um, we got to we got to make some changes. So I took the barrel to Bobby Hoyt, um, and Bobby punched it from a 45 caliber to a 54, and it shoots like a dream. Hmm. Um, I, so I shoot a 54 caliber gun that started life as a 45, which makes it much more manageable. It was always really heavy, um, and it, it lightened it up significantly. And I really enjoy yeah. taking it on, you know, taking it into the woods. And, and I really enjoy doing uh, woods walks and, and silhouette type shoots. I'm, I've done paper shoots. Uh, um, I lose focus. I've, ADHD. Yeah, it takes a lot of focus. Absolutely. I have a tough time staying focused on paper. I just get bored. <laughs> Nothing against yeah. paper shooters, but it's just not my cup of tea. You know, I'd rather be out walking with other people and in the woods and enjoying nature and plink, plink metal and, you know, see it move, hear it, hear it ring and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So you don't, I mean, you're not a, a full-time muzzleloader, but uh, I think a lot of us would like to be. Absolutely. But how did you get into, you know, where you're at now as a as a young adult making knives and things like you're posting online? So I started um, probably in my late teens. Um, I grew up in a program for boys called Roll Rangers, the camping-based program, uh, similar to Boy Scouts. And through that, there's a Frontiersman Avenue um, that I basically tested into and, and became a member of. And part of that is you have to figure out what your craft is going to be um, to produce, you know, a, a goods or a service to the other members of, of that group. And I never really could settle on anything. So I was kind of a wanderer in the fact that I tried a little bit of everything. I mean, I tried some bead work. I tried um, just different odds and ends things. And, you know, I always had a fascination with smithing. And I went into, I had a friend of mine who taught me leather craft. And I started, I really started pretty heavily with leather craft, making bags and hunting bags, shooting bags, that sort of thing. And mm -hmm. at one point in time, I got almost frustrated and just decided that, um, you know, I'm done making bags. I'm, I'm just going to quit. I'm not going to, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'll keep all my stuff and it's just going to go in this tote and I'm going to shove it in the closet. And mm -hmm. that's what I did. Um, just I had gotten on a bag, and actually I still have it, still uncompleted. I got frustrated just with um, making some things line up and things not looking right, just not being happy. Yeah. So it was a couple months later that um, a family friend of our, of mine, um, and now a very good friend, um, personal friend Mike Small, who's a uh, powder horn maker, um, 
he and I kind of got together at his shop and we were chit-chatting and I was looking at some stuff he had made and just really kind of drooling over some horns he had hanging on the wall. And I finally got the courage and I said, all right, Mike, have you ever taught anybody to make a powder horn? <laughs> and he said, yes, once, years ago. And I said, well, why, why not more? And he said, I've never had anybody else ask me. I said, well, would you teach me to make a powder horn? He said, well, I'll teach you everything I know. It's up to you to figure out and filter through what's worth keeping and what's not. And <laughs> maybe at the end of it, you, you will have made a successful powder horn. So um, I got into horn making and different things. And while I enjoy horn making, and I've got a lot of knowledge from Mike, and I still make some pieces and parts here and there, I still hit this roadblock of, I don't know if this is what I, you know, if this is my thing, I enjoy it and I enjoy seeing what other people do with it. But I kind of, again, hit this like almost artistic roadblock. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think that's exactly what it, what it is. And I went back to, you know, um, just remembering things that I really enjoy and blacksmithing and just smith work in general metal work has always been a fascination of mine so i started looking at stuff that guys were producing online and actually really dove into one of your podcasts and that was with ian pratt and i really started looking at a lot of people's work ian's work um Kyle Willard's work at, mm. from Old Dominion Forge and a couple other guys and said, you know, that's, I love the beautiful crisp lines of what they're doing and what they're making. And I want one, but I know I can't buy one from everybody. So yeah. why not just try to make my own, you know, and I started doing a lot of research and while I watched a lot of videos online of different things, I quickly realized there's a lot of good and yet also not so great information out there from other people. And you have to filter through and figure out, A, what is good and what works and, and just do your research. And um, so I, I quickly just ordered some steel and started hacking away at some stuff and my first knife I made I thought oh man this is great and then I walked in the house and I put it down for two days and I came back out and I looked at it and I went oh gosh that's so crude and ugly <laughs> what I got to go on yeah and I found that you know even with the limited time I have of not being able to do this full time um you know an, an hour here two hours there you know part of a day on a Saturday something like that that I just kept being drawn out to the little area I have for shop space until I get my shop built. Um, and it, it was just every chance I got, I'd finish dinner and put my kids to bed and I'm running out to the shop and spending 45 minutes, you know, I mean, I, uh, just even last night, I, I came in from a long day at work and was like, you know what? I'm spending a half hour in the shop tonight and I'm going to grind on a knife and at least get some profile going. And it, it's just what I do. You know, I try to, it, it's, I think I've truly found something that I love and enjoy 
and I'm not hitting that roadblock, you know? Yeah. Um, so. I think that's what's neat about talking with artists and craftspeople, you know, involved with, you know, the ancillary stuff of muzzleloading. I mean, we love muzzleloading, but there's a lot of neat stuff that goes along with it. And everybody kind of has their own path on where they find what they want to do. I think, and you look at even somebody you know, that's been doing it forever. You look at somebody like Herschel House and there's a huge backlog of his own history of going through that. And I think even some of the original makers that are documented in, in things are in museums, you can see the little things here and there that they touched on before they kind of found their thing. And then there's a bunch of that thing. And I think it's all part of a neat artistic journey that everybody can be involved in, you know, connected to all of the history and, and the shooting that goes with muzzleloading. Absolutely. And like you were saying, even to go back to some of the historical makers that you see, you know, gun builders and, and things like that, that you see their touches here and there, you know, more than likely when, when we look at that kind of stuff, it's truly from the standpoint of an apprentice even though we know them as this great, fantastic maker and the wonderful work that they did, they had to learn from somewhere. They had to learn from somebody. And what I'm constantly reminded of is the people that we consider that are great and fantastic are usually that way because they did something different than the person who taught them. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, they're not replicating identical work of their master because if they did then we wouldn't look at them that great we'd go oh yeah that's so-and-so's work copied because you know they copied their master's work you know yeah. and, and that's all that it and you look at you know even great artists of today that learned under someone else i mean i know there's a lot of guys that learn under let's say Keith Castile and Keith does amazing and beautiful work. But if you want to stand out on your own, you got to be different from Keith, you know? Yeah. Otherwise you're always a, a second to that. Exactly. Exactly. So, and I know those guys won't be around forever, which is difficult to think about for so many people, mm -hmm. especially people that are younger, you know, myself and yourself included, and we kind of idolize those people at times, but at the same time, they're not going to be here forever. And yes, they do great work, but who takes the next step? You know, how do you, how do you continue such a great tradition if you're just replicating someone else's work? And in my opinion, you gotta do something different, stand out from the crowd in some way or form. Yeah. And I think that's what, it makes it all the more interesting you know, within an, an artist's own journey, trying to, you know, you want, you want to emulate and honor those people, but you also want to get out and do your own thing. And I think a lot of that may, I think at times that, you know, artist block that you can get trying to develop something can be because of you're trying to replicate something too much, you know, and maybe that's your head saying, you know, this is too close to such and such, you know, we, we need to, we need to take a break and kind of recalibrate and find some different reference material to look at and then go at it again. Absolutely. And I, I think that that even comes into play with the opposite end of it, of you're looking at 
someone's work that you idolize, you know, let's say it's horn making. And uh, one person that I really looked at his artwork was John DeWald. Mm-hmm. And I had this artistic block because I knew that I could never produce John's work. And I got stuck on that. And it was like, that's not who I am. It's not what I'm supposed to do. I'm not supposed to emulate someone else's work. I need to make my own. Yeah. And what that's in the hobby that you continue, you just find a different avenue, or whether you change what you're doing and making to something else. You know, it, it just depends on the person and what they really enjoy about it. So what are some of your you know, some of your favorite artists or your favorite, um, you know, things to reference, is there a certain book or a certain period or, or is it just kind of you're online and you're absorbing as much as you can? Uh, to be honest for me, I mean, I, I'm online and I'm absorbing as much as I can, but at the same time, I'm cautious about what that source is. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's a lot of guys that have done their homework and, um, even talking with friends about different things and looking at originals. Um, I've got a good friend who deals with a lot of originals, has handled a lot of originals, done repairs to original guns, that sort of thing that, you know, I'll pick his brain and go, okay, what do you think about X, Y, Z? Or how do you think they did this? Or I'd like to achieve something that looks different and just using some of that knowledge. I mean, I know not everybody has a great contact like that, but I'm fortunate that I do and um, able to bounce things off of him as well as some other close friends of mine that, you know, you just build a trust with and you go, okay, you might be a gunsmith and and this is what you do, but I want to apply something similar to, being a knife maker, whether, you know, you're actually forging or you're a whitesmith and and doing file work, um, whatever that avenue is, I want to use something similar to what you're doing. How do we do that? Yeah. And just going off of that is, you know, um, and looking at, you know, some of the, there, there are some good books and stuff out there. Um, the homespun knife of America and, some of those books that you can pull ideas from rather than copy exactly, but you can pick up bits of architecture, so to say, off of a specific item and apply it another way um, is what I really enjoy doing. Yeah, I think that I think it's important to do that in a lot of respects. I mean, primarily, so you're you're making something that is, you know, if that's what you're into, is it's something that's semi-accurate historically. You're not kind of going off the wall, but then you're also studying that and then able to apply those same thoughts and, like you say, design elements into something that you're making. And that's something I've enjoyed talking to craftspeople and artisans just over like the past year with COVID, where we've just been doing phone interviews because everybody's at home, is so much of this, the the base principles of it are all the same, whether you're a horner or a gun builder, a blacksmith or a whitesmith. A lot of that same, d- the design or historical principles are all there. And it's just how you apply them to different techniques or different um, mediums, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, I've got a good friend who, like I said, is, is a gunsmith and 
I asked him one day, I said, so is that a, is that carving correct for that gun? And he said, well, time period wise, yes, but that exact gun, no. I said, well, why didn't you put the correct one on there? He said, because it was hideous. <laughs> he said, it, was what, it was what the builder of the time could do. But he said, if you take another example of his same work six years later, look at how drastically it has improved. And he said, why would I imitate or replicate something that's crude? You know, mm-hmm. I, that's not my goal, you know, and that, I think that applies to whatever hobby, craft, accoutrement, whatever you're building that, you know, you, you strive for the best that you can do right now. Um, and obviously as you build and grow and continue to improve over the years, that changes and you look back and you go, wow, why did I ever do that? But at the same time, that's what the historic builders did too. Yeah. For a limited time, you can enter to win a 15-pack of Thor Bullets. That's a $30 to $34 value. Visit thorbullets.com slash NMLRA to fill out the form and enter to win. So what's on your bench? Like, what are you working on right now? Like, what's what's going on this week? This week, um, I have a small little knife um, that is about seven and a quarter inches long uh, with a three and a half, four inch blade on it um, for a real good friend of mine that's actually across the country in Washington state um, that he basically said, Hey, I want a little neck knife, patch knife kind of thing. Um, would you be interested? And I said, for you, absolutely. So I've uh, started working on it. I was actually in the shop last night, um, putting on a rough grind for some, um, some of the shaping of the blade and paper in the tang and a couple other things. I spent about 45 minutes knocking out some rough work. Um, and then I've got another knife that is kind of in limbo. I started, um, uh, that is going to be a hidden tang antler handle knife. The blade itself is about eight inches long. Um, that's got some really neat, artistic features to it um, that I'm just waiting on a couple different things to come in and so I can continue. And um, I want to do some unique aging to that knife specifically. Okay. Um, try to do things and see how they turn out, whether it's, you know, something to continue on or whether it's a complete bust. Right. But, That's how that goes. I think a lot of the times, what would you, I guess I'm, I'm straying a little bit from the questions, but what would you recommend for somebody that sees your work and wants to try some of the stuff that you do? You know, it's kind of seeing themselves in a similar path. You know, are there resources or where would you direct them to start learning how to do what you're doing? If you're learning, if you're wanting to learn to do what I'm doing, I'll give you the best advice that I can. And it's the same advice someone gave me, get out and just try it. And I mean, I know that sounds cliche and that a lot of people say that, but if you don't get out and even just start with basic tools, uh, I mean, knife making, there's stuff online. You can start with 
a hacksaw and a couple files and make knives. And, you know, I mean, I'm not using anything elaborate. I, I don't have extravagant thousand dollar tools and, <laughs> and that kind of stuff at this point. I mean, I, I just can't afford it with, you know, the family, a growing family and a full-time job and that kind of stuff. It's, it's not where I'm at. Yeah. Um, but with what tools I do have is, you know, to get out and start and try and, Basically, the the second best thing I can tell you is make the best thing that you can. You know, don't don't cut corners. Don't shortchange yourself. Shoot shoot for the stars. You know, mm-hmm. if you see something that you like and you think, oh, I can make that, go for it. If it comes up short, keep trying. Get better each time. Don't make the same mistake. Um, you know, and as crude as this sounds and as harsh as it sounds, don't take every positive thing you hear to heart. Um, there's there's got to be some influence to what you do as a craftsman to know that it's not perfect every time. Nothing ever is. It's, yeah. You know, guys that have been doing this craft for 40 years that they know their mistakes. And if they really wanted to, they could point out every little mistake in super fine detail work that you and I just don't see, you know, it's because we didn't build it, but you have to have somebody at the same time that rather than giving you all the positives also helps direct you in a way that you improve. Yeah. Cause if all you is people constantly giving you praise and you never have any constructive criticism, how do you get better? Yeah, you don't. <laughs> you just kind of, you. I think you stay at that beginner stage and I don't care if that's, you know, forging or, or if that's shooting, if you're, if you're happy with where you're at at the start and, and if that's as far as you want to take it, you know, more power to you. But if you want to get better, you've got to you got to be a little hard on yourself. You got to push forward. Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, that comes from yourself. Sometimes it comes from other people. You know, I've had things, and, oh man, this is great. You get so excited to go show somebody and, and everybody's like, oh yeah, yeah, that looks great. And you see pictures online and you people comment, oh man, this is, this is awesome. Or, you know, you get 400 likes on a photo on social media and you're like, oh man, that's, that was fantastic. And then you go show a close friend who goes, okay, I'm going to bring you back down to earth. Yeah. And you, okay, what do you see? Well, your details, you know, you've got grind marks in this blade that you should have taken an extra 10 minutes with a coarser grit and gotten that out rather than leaving those two grind marks right there at the edge of the handle. Most people don't see them, but I do. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you're right. I can't do that again, you know? So it's, it's not always that you've made something awful. It's just little improvements that someone else with a detailed eye can catch for you when you're on a a high of, Oh, this is the greatest thing that you need to realize. Nope. There's still a flaw somewhere, you know? Yeah. Um, And that's, that comes with time, but you, a lot, I feel like a lot of people 
aren't open to that constructive criticism anymore. They just want people to tell them how great their stuff is rather than where they see a flaw to get better from. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Because it's it's hard to not see that, especially on, uh, I mean, a lot of the Facebook groups, I'm not knocking them by any means, but that is, at times it just becomes an echo chamber and there's no, there's no real growth or change from somebody's work, you know, whether it's their first, their fifth or their hundredth thing. If you have just that constant praise without any, you know, honest critique about it to help that person improve. I think it happens because generally, especially especially on social media, the general person that posts a picture of their work isn't looking for constructive criticism. Mm. They want that praise. They want that feel good. Look what I did. And people offer or don't necessarily offer, but they give constructive criticism not knowing whether or not someone really wants it and that person gets offended. Um, you know, the original poster gets offended yeah, because it's not what they were after. And then if you're the person that gave the constructive criticism, you get a bad rap of you don't like people's work. You bat, all you do is bash what people have to do or, you know, what they're showing. And that's, I'm sorry, but, Someone at some point in time, if they want to grow, you have to take that constructive criticism and someone has to give it to you. Yeah. But at the time, I think with social media especially, that's not what people are after. People are after the look at me and they want the attention and they want the feel good of look what I made. Um, and a lot of the constructive criticism because it's online and not done face to face or even in a phone conversation, you can't interpret how someone says something and it just gets taken the wrong way. Yeah. I think that's a, a really good answer. I, I think it's just as important as, as taking and you know, digesting the information that comes from a critique, you know, offering a critique when it's not wanted is just as, is pretty rude. You know, yes. It, it, in yeah, the wrong I mean, format. It, it, Absolutely. You know, it's one thing to reach out to say to someone and go, okay, you did a great job on your knife. Would you like some constructive criticism to get better? And if that person says no, then you move on. If they say yes, you still have to, I don't want to say you tiptoe around somebody, but you still have to get a feel for who that person is. You know, I've got a real good friend that would tell you, I can I can be the straightest shooter you know, and I'll make a lot of people mad because I'll just tell them how it is and what I think of their work. Mm -hmm. He said, it's just me being honest, but people don't always like honesty. Yeah. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm behind on the trend here, but with, with shows like Forged and Fire, do you think there's, in the popularity of knife making that comes out of that, do you think there's still room, you know, for people to be interested in making knives or do you think it's a pretty crowded space and, you know, is there something else that's going to be the next big thing or do you think there's a lot of room still in knife making? I think there's plenty of room. I mean, I haven't been doing it that long, um, I've really, to be honest, Ethan, I, I really started making knife, make, doing knife making less than six months ago. Mm -hmm. um, and it's 
what I'm finding is you really just have to find your own niche. You have to be different. You have to not copy someone else's work. Um, you can look at other people's examples and what they do and that's fine, but don't try to be that person. Um, you know, I, I threw out Ian Pratt earlier. Ian does some fantastic work and I know you've had lengthy discussions with Ian, but I'm not trying to be Ethan. That's or Ian. I'm sorry. It's not who I, um, you know, it's not where I'm at and I'll never claim to be him. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to be my own person and people that know me for who I am and what I do. So I think there's all kinds of area, especially even in knife making. It's one of those things that, um, you go to a show and, there might be more knife makers in the room than anything else. But at the same time, if you're looking to do it as a business or even just as a hobby and sell some knives, I don't know what it is, but guys like to buy knives. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) It's most guys you ask them, Hey, do you have a knife? And they're like one, what are you talking about? I have five or 10 or 50, you know? Um, it's a thing that, I don't know what it is, but guys just like sharp, pointy objects, you know, yeah. and uh, we get drawn to them. And um, so, again, I think there's plenty of room, even if it's for somebody who just says, you know, I want something like that, but I can't afford to buy it. Try to make it, you know, see what you can do. And if you find that it's not your thing, that's okay. Find something else that might be that then allows you to afford what you want, you know? Yeah. I think that's some really sound advice. So what is one of your, the, one of the favorite things that you've made and what's one of the favorite things that somebody else has made, you know, that you either have, or you really admire, you know, just one specific item. And, and could you, could you describe it? Um, for me, my favorite thing that I have made, um, probably something that was, completely different for me, but I really enjoy using. Um, and that's actually, I made myself a diamond shelter. Um, it, you know, I, I know how to sew. I learned at a young age how to mend shirts and sew on buttons and that sort of thing, but I still struggle with it all the time. Um, I pull out a sewing machine and I'm like, Oh, where do I start? Uh." (laughs) (laughs) And, it's just kind of, kind of awkward and cumbersome. And, you know, it's, I don't do it frequently, but I decided that, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, I want to make a shelter and I want to make a diamond. I want to be able to use something that I've made and take it with me and go, Oh yeah. <laughs> See that, that, that's my house because I made it. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> so I made it, I made myself a diamond. Um, out of some semi waterproof material that I got from crazy crow. And, uh, I sewed, sewed it all together, made a 10 by 10, all the loops, extra eyelets, um, put in some extra stiffener stuff in it, you know, for durability and, um, really just fell in love with it and love to take it out. Uh, spring, summer, winter, you name it. I'll take it out and camp and build myself a fire and just stay warm and comfortable. And, you know, it's not too big, not too small. So that's probably 
right now, my favorite thing that I've made just because I use it all the time and it yeah. goes with me. Um, as far as favorite things somebody else has made or favorite thing that I just do and awe over, um, that's a tough one. Um, I've got a lot of really close friends and consider them family brothers to me that are all builders, makers, um, that I'm constantly, you know, seeing what, what they're doing new, what they're working on. Mm -hmm. Um, and not necessarily trying to match their work, but seeing where they're at and just what they're working on and getting, even pulling ideas off of something different, whether it's, you know, a piece of jewelry, trade silver that, um, you, someone's engraving or whether it's a historical gun recreation that somebody's building or, uh, a restoration work that a good friend of mine does, you know, it just depends. Um, and it can change from month to month. Mm-hmm. So. I like that. I think that's a, that's a, that's a nice answer. <laughs> So I don't know that there is a right answer to that one. That was yeah. tough. But yeah, that's a tough one. It's, it's a constantly revolving thing for me. It's a, what I'm looking at. And I guess it has to do with where I want to try to pull inspiration from, even for myself. Yeah. So what else do you do I mean, besides work, raising kids, and making knives? What are some of your other hobbies? Um, You about said it. Um, I mean, I, I've... I've always uh, dabbled in, in things here and there. You know, I I really enjoy working on stuff around the house, whether it be um, doing some remodeling or something. I'm currently finishing the basement of my house uh, for my wife and kids and even myself for a little rec room area. Nice. Um, my next big project is going to be actually building my shop uh out back it's going to be a 16 by 16 lean-to style building um that i've cut some timber here on the property to start you know at least making a a rough um foundation for out of some timber and then using some other recycled materials and stuff um to build my shop to have truly my own space to get away you Mm -hmm. know on a Saturday ever and spend a couple hours and still you know have truly have room be able to stretch my legs i'm working in a pretty small area um at the moment that is uh probably eight by six at this point okay yeah, um, that's pretty compact <laughs> yeah pretty packed i got a little workbench and um, I, I moved some stuff in and out as needed. Um, I've got a car that was started to be restored sitting in my garage that I'm working around the tail end of it. Um, you know, so I've, I'm tight on space right now, but, um, it, it just, it works for me for now, but I know it's not what I want and it's not where I want to be mm-hmm. working on, you know, expanding and, having my own crew workshop. That'll be 
starting really kicking off early this spring. Yeah, as soon as this snow melts. So where can people who have listened to the show and want to see some more of your work and hear more from you, where can they find you online and, and get in touch? I am on uh, Facebook with Stonefield Accoutrements, as well as Instagram under the same username. I just um, this week opened up an Etsy account uh, as a seller. And unfortunately, the name Stonefield Accoutrements is too long by about four characters. (laughs) Uh, So I took uh, family initials and created best which is my wife myself and kids are first initials so i have best accoutrements uh on etsy you can start to see some stuff there um but yeah it's uh just slowly moving things along and uh building and growing you know taking it pretty much from a hobby just for myself and learning experience to truly making it a hobby not necessarily a business standpoint because I do have a full-time job, but um, a hobby to be able to grow and reach more of the muzzleloading community and um, contemporary artist community with things that I'm doing and um, you know, starting to continue to build interest. Yeah. Well, that's everything that I had on my list. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Um, I don't know that I really have a whole lot extra either. Um, you know, I really appreciate and thank you for, um, the opportunity. Um, it's of course. definitely a experience for me and, and a growing one at that. Um, you know, I'm always open to questions and, uh, try to be as helpful as I can, especially to people of, you know, younger generation and those older as well, but you know, people looking to learn and grow, um, the way people have helped me, I always try to give back and especially those that are younger, you know, whatever I can do to help them grow and get started is great. Cause I want to continue to see the hobby that we're involved in, in, in the muzzle loading and muzzle loading community, see it to not only continue, but also to grow. And, you know, I think that's ever changing door and i know there's a lot of people out there that have done it for years and years and years but i think there's something refreshing to see a younger generation show interest and i always try to give give those guys everything that i can you know it's not to me it's not a competition you know somebody trying to take business or anything like that for me because i don't look at it that way it's more of seeing someone who has the potential to be an artist just grow and um, take on new challenges and new things. I'd like to thank Tyler again for coming on the show. It was kind of short notice getting him on. He thankfully had a snow day from work and put the kids down for a nap and was able to talk to me for a little bit. It was a lot of fun. And I hope you enjoyed it as well. We're going to look at getting Tyler back on again sometime. And um, I mean, just as a testament to Tyler's just generosity to the community, Tyler's been talking to me back and forth online on Instagram and Facebook about some of the things that I've been making for the video series that we do here at the NMLRA, and I'm looking forward to connecting with him more, and he's got some tips and tricks he's going to show me kind of off the air and uh, to help me kind of along my own journey here. So if you're interested in what Tyler's doing, 
feel free to reach out to him. He's a real nice guy and more than willing to share what he knows or direct you to somebody who do, who does know. Coming up this year, the NMLRA Nationals are back on. We had last year canceled due to COVID, and we've been working and planning all fall, winter, and now spring getting ready for this. June 12th through 20th in Friendship, Indiana, at the NMLRA headquarters at the Walter Klein Range. Come on down for eight days, packed with muzzleloading, muzzleloader shopping, camping, history. We're lining up some demonstrations and some lectures for in the education center, trying to line up a few classes. If you're interested at all in putting on a class or know somebody who would be interested in putting on a single day class or even an evening lecture, the kind of thing where we can all gather around a screen and, and listen to people talk about what they're what they know, give a presentation about history, gun making, accoutrement making, anything at all related to muzzle loading, please have them get in touch with me at media at nmlra.org. But even if you're not interested in, in any of that, and you're interested just to come and shoot and shop and camp, I mean, it's one of the things that we at the NMLRA do best. And we've been sitting on our hands a little bit the past year, just waiting to come into this time now. So it's really exciting for us to be going full steam ahead with the June Nationals. If you're interested in competing, camping, or shopping, and, and want some more information, visit nmlra.org. From now until the shoot, the main button right on the homepage is going to direct you to more information on what it takes and what you need to do to register to shoot, get started, to reserve a campsite, and just how to come down and have a lot of fun with us. It's, it's going to be a bang-up year, and, and we're really excited about it here. If you like the show and like what we're doing at the NMLRA, then you're going to love Muzzle Blast Magazine. Muzzle Blast Magazine is the only monthly muzzleloading magazine published in the United States. It's something that we've been doing since the 1930s, and we strive to make it the best muzzleloading magazine out there. You can subscribe now and support what we do at the NMLRA and this show for as little as $3 a month. That's going to get you 12 issues of Muzzle Blast Magazine, 36 bucks, and you're going to be a member of the NMLRA, which gives you access to the NMLRA campground, shooting, competing in our national matches, and opens the gate to more of our traditional craft classes like we talk about on the show, as well as other opportunities that we're kind of working on behind the scenes and trying to get ready here for when Indiana finally thaws out this year. So head on over to nmlra.org. We'll have a link in the description. You can find out more. I'd like to thank you all again for listening. It's been a rough year with taking the show from on the road to my home, but it's been a lot of fun. And I, I just can't thank all of you enough for sticking around and being with us through this challenging year. I'm really looking forward to getting back on the road this year and interviewing more people in their shops in person and bringing more of the muzzleloading community to you. Thank you.